This is an ABC podcast. Today, we look back at how the law adapts to change. This is Pager. He's a nine-year-old macaque who had a Neuralink placed in each side of his brain. A monkey playing the classic video game Pong. Very cute, but could this lead to more than just mind games? He's learned to interact with a computer. Pager simply thinks about moving his hand up or down. Should a judge say, instead of sending you to jail, we'll make it a condition of release into the community that you have this brain implant activated all the time that monitors your brain 24-7 and from time to time intervenes on it when you get too angry. Facing the challenges posed by emerging neurotechnologies. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Welcome to The Law Report. First to a decision of the High Court from April last year that says a lot about how our attitudes to marriage have changed over the years. In a unanimous decision, the seven judges dismissed the principle that couples are always of one mind and therefore cannot conspire. Law professor Ali Lofnan from the University of Sydney says the case involved a young married couple who were planning a terrorist attack. They're a married couple who were engaged in planning a terrorist offence that was to intended to take place on New Year's Eve 2015. This was 18-year-old Alo Bridget Namoa and her then-husband, 18-year-old Sameh Beda. These 18-year-olds, I think they dubbed themselves the Islamic Bonnie and Clyde. That's right, Damien. And they were not successful in carrying out the terrorist attack, but they were charged with conspiring to do acts of preparation for a terrorist offence. And that's an offence under the Commonwealth Criminal Code. And what in particular was uh, Namoa, the, the young woman, found to have done to constitute a conspiracy? So she was found to have encouraged, agreed with her then husband that he would commit these terrorist attacks and to have encouraged him to do so. There was evidence, I think, of text messages and other communications between the couple in the lead up to the planned attack. So in 2019, uh, this pair are sentenced, I think, Beta gets four years jail and Namoa gets three years jail and nine months. She appealed and and her case went all the way to the High Court. What was the basis of this appeal? It's kind of a a curious argument. Yes, she argues that because she and Beda were married at the time of the agreement to commit the terrorist act, that she could not be guilty of a conspiracy because as a married couple, she was arguing that they were not two parties, as is required for the offence of conspiracy, that our spouses alone cannot commit conspiracy. And she relies, or her lawyers rely on, really old Canadian and New Zealand cases. That's right, Damien, and also old common law. So the jurisprudence cited by her lawyers with some Canadian and New Zealand decisions from the 1950s, but actually there's even older cases that and discussion in the common law dating back many centuries to this idea that spouses cannot alone be convicted of conspiracy. There was one uh, case, I think it's a cowbell case from Ontario in Canada from the 1950s, and the court found that, quote, a husband and wife cannot be found guilty of conspiring with each other alone to commit forgery because, judicially speaking, they form but one person and are presumed to have but one will, and, and one person alone cannot conspire. So, so, so that, 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 they're the precedents that she's relying on here. That's right. This 
reflects a, an older idea in the common law, which is what's been called the doctrine of unity, that a man and a wife are one flesh. And with that language, you can hear it's, it's a biblical idea that there's only one will, one mind, and therefore it's not possible to have two parties as is required for the offence of conspiracy or indeed forgery, as you mentioned. The High Court heard this argument and just, no, they dismissed it, didn't they? So they found that there was no incorporation of this old idea of spousal privilege into the Commonwealth Code, into the statutory provision under which the Namoa and her husband had been convicted. And as a result of finding that, they didn't have to find or say anything about whether or not this old idea about spousal privilege had existed in the common law and if it had gone away already. But they weren't giving any credence to this argument by Namoa's lawyers. Primarily because of the statutory code. That's right, exactly. But I think there's in the judgment to say that, you know, this is a very old idea that is outmoded. And of course, there's other decisions on similar issues of spousal privilege that should suggest that the courts are recognising that these ideas no longer have any currency in the contemporary context. Indeed, the law has evolved in recent years. I think in in 2011, there was also an important case which dealt with married couples, uh, the Stoddart and the Australian Crime Commission. What was that case? This was a case in which a woman who was married to the person of interest. A tax accountant who, who was being investigated for fraud, tax fraud. That's right. And she was called to give evidence to the commission about um, the communications that her husband had been engaged in. And she argued there spousal privilege. And in that decision in Stoddart, the High Court also rejected that idea, saying that this old notion of doctrine of unity, this that husband and wife are one flesh, that that's fallen away now. That's not good law in the current era. Whether married or not, people have legal obligations and duties that are over and above, say, for example, loyalty to a partner. Loyalty, but there's also responsibilities towards each other. I mean, until not so long ago, sexual assault within marriage was not an offence. By separating out people, individuals, that that actually protects the rights and the autonomy of individuals. And changed really recently because, as you say, there was the idea from the 1700s that actually women gave consent to sexual intercourse on marriage. And so this was something that was the conjugal right of the man to ask for sex. But actually... By the time this issue of the legality of rape in marriage, the possibility of having an offence of rape in marriage came to the High Court, it was in the early 2000s, and the decision of PGA and the Queen in 2012 held that that idea was no longer an acceptable part of modern Australian common law. So the idea that the common law rule that a man could not rape his wife was no longer good law in Australia. And that had fallen away by the 1960s, which was when the offences at issue in that decision were said to have taken place. But the court couldn't say precisely when that idea had had gone away. It's really interesting, flipping it around in the the Namoa decision, um, it would have been advantageous to Namoa to successfully argue that uh, we're one married unit here and, and we're not individuals. Um, so, so it can work either way, you know, in some circumstances. But at base, the common law assumption there is that the woman is not fully capacitous. She's not fully autonomous. So whether it be that she is giving consent 
in advance, if you like, or always and subservient to the man in a marriage or whether she can't conspire because they're of one will, as was the, um, the legal fiction. It's based on the idea that women are less than fully responsible legal subjects and that's what's not acceptable anymore. Big picture, what does this Namoa decision tell us about our evolving views and our evolving laws around gender and relationships? It tells us that things are changing, Damien, but that perhaps that the law is trying to play catch up with some of the social changes which um, uh, we would say have, have well and truly embedded themselves in contemporary Australian life. Um, it takes obviously a particular set of facts to and a particular appeal process to get uh, an issue like this before the High Court. And by the time that happens, we can see that perhaps there's well and truly an accepted idea of change in the law, that something like spousal immunity that two spouses can conspire because they're not one will or one mind or one legal person as um, the doctrine of unity had it, that that's really truly anachronistic and it's no longer appropriate to have something like that represented in the in the Australian criminal law. Sydney University Law Professor Ali Lafton, uh, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Damien. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime, via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Neuralink, which is part of Elon Musk's empire, made news around the world with the release of a very charming video of a macaque monkey called Pager playing the old 1970s video game Pong using its mind. One of the things the Neuralinks allow Pager to do is to play his favourite video game, Pong. To control his paddle on the right side of the screen, Pager simply thinks about moving his hand up or down. We've removed the joystick altogether. That's right, Pager wasn't playing the game using a joystick or console. Rather, Pager's brain signals were being sent wirelessly via an implanted device. As you can see, Pager is amazingly good at mind Pong. He's focused and he's playing entirely of his own volition. It's wonderful to think we can control the outside world with our thoughts. It's not magic. The reason Neuralink works is because it's recording and decoding electrical signals from the brain. But does this technology also mean our thoughts and our actions could be controlled remotely? And if an individual loses their autonomy or free will, what does this mean for the law, the criminal law? What about privacy? Can our thoughts now be monitored? Dr Alan McKay is the Deputy Director of the Institute of Criminology at the University of Sydney. He's an expert in neuroscience and the law. Alan McKay, walk us through what are we seeing in this video of um, the macaque monkey pager? So what, what's happening is the uh, monkey has got a, a brain implant. This uh, brain implant wirelessly connects with the uh, computer. What's happening is the brain in, implant is uh, reading signals uh, from its brain. And in that way, the monkey has, has gained control over uh, this um, electronic uh, bat that it controls on the screen in order to play the game. So it's a brain reading device that allows the, the monkey to uh, interact with a computer by 
its thoughts without using a bodily action and just control the game that way. Now, it's not, as I understand it, a revolutionary breakthrough, but it certainly makes great video and, and certainly captures the public imagination. It does. Uh, although there has been research uh, in in, the, in this area for quite a while, uh, I think uh, the interest of Elon Musk and the video shows that now things are moving into a more commercial phase where companies like Neuralink and, and various other uh, neurotech companies are, are trying to race to get some good neurotechnology or brain-computer interfaces uh, that can be commercialised. It's commercial now. It's in the mainstream. Indeed, Neuralink released a video of a pig called Gertrude, again with a chip in her brain, and a computer tracking her neural activity as she looked for food. And you have Elon Musk explaining how the implant is working. Okay. The the beeps you're hearing are real-time signals from the Neuralink in Gertrude's head. So this Neuralink connects to neurons that are uh, in her snout, so whenever she snuffles around and touches something with her snout, uh, that sends out neural spikes, which are detected here. And uh, she's had the implant for two months. So this is a healthy and happy pig with an implant that is two months. The implant was reading signals from the pig's brain, and these uh, signals were, again, making sounds and appearing on screen. Uh, so it was a... Uh, brain reading device, so a bit, a bit of neurotechnology. This technology, it can be used for disabled people to move much more freely in the world, uh, to control wheelchairs, to control computers, uh, to control anything, really. It, it has really extraordinary applications. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point to make. We might talk about later, there's some ethical considerations, legal considerations, but there's a tremendous up possible upside uh, for somebody who uh, perhaps can't communicate because of some brain injury or can't control their body. Uh, there's the possibility of regaining the ability to communicate for somebody with locked-in syndrome, for example, and the possibility down the track of um, regaining mobility for somebody who um, has got some some form of paralysis. So, uh, yeah, there's um, good reason to be looking at uh, this kind of technology. It can help people with physical disability. It could also potentially have implications for people living with conditions like epilepsy or schizophrenia or perhaps dementia or amnesia as well. Yeah, yeah. So you can think of... uh brain-computer interfaces, newer technology is um, reading from the brain or sometimes writing to the brain. So take epilepsy, for example. Somebody who is about to have an epileptic fit, there'll be some neural precursors to the fit that a piece of neurotechnology, some sort of um, brain implant could read and give the person an advance warning that they're about to have a fit in order that they might perhaps send a message to a phone, for example, so that they can lie down somewhere safely. Or another step would be to actually detect the impending fit. So that's reading from the brain and then write to the brain. So perhaps perform some sort of electrical stimulation 
so that the brain is returned to a more normal state and the person doesn't actually have a fit, so the fit's avoided. So far we've been talking about the science and, and the possible medical applications. What are the potential legal issues that you see emerging here? Are we potentially seeing the possibility of humans or animals having their thoughts or actions being controlled externally? I mean, there are a number of areas to talk about. Let's talk first about the criminal law. What do you see as the big, big issue here? One issue is um, what was the criminal act? If somebody... um punches someone, it, it's obviously what, what bit of conduct constitutes the criminal act. It was the throwing of a punch. But let's assume that somebody controls a drone by imagining certain mental actions. And say they imagine waving the hand and the drone goes right and they imagine kicking a football, the, the drone dives down. They, they've got control over it by imagining things. And they fly the drone into someone and the drone injures them or or kills them. Well, what was it that the person did that caused that? It wasn't a bodily action. It seems to be some kind of mental action, an act of the imagination, which is a rather strange situation for the the law because it's it's been used to uh, crimes being committed by people throwing punches or using their muscle systems to utter false claims and that sort or of thing. Or even controlling the joystick or pressing the button or yeah. what have you. But uh, normally yeah. there's some kind of physical action to go along with the intention and you normally need both, don't you? You need the action and That's the intention right. to get a successful criminal prosecution and you're saying, well, that kind of nexus no longer exists. Yes, I think that's one of the issues. The law has traditionally made a distinction between the mental part and the conduct part. And if people start doing bad things by way of uh, brain-computer interface, this kind of way of seeing things that has existed in the law for a long time seems to be under some pressure. Let's peer into the future, maybe not too far into the future, and assume that you could have a device that is perhaps implanted into the brain of somebody who has committed a a crime, maybe an impulsive crime, throwing a punch or something like that. Let's assume that a person has been convicted of that and now they've had a a brain implant and the the aim of the brain implant is to... um, detect the neural activity that precedes an angry outburst and lashing out. Instead of just letting the anger and the impulsivity mount, it just intervenes on the brain to try and calm the person down. And so you can, you can imagine a, a device that uh, monitors a person's brain all the time and looks for neural patterns associated with uh, some kind of impulsive outburst and then intervenes on it. And uh, so a question for the legal system is, you know, is is that something that a court might uh, order as a condition of release into the community instead of sending someone to jail? Should a judge say, well, instead of sending you to jail, what will do is um, 
will make it a condition of release into the community that you have this brain implant activated all the time that monitors your brain 24-7 and from time to time intervenes on it when you get too angry. We do have chemical castration for sex offenders, don't we? I mean, some of them are only kind of released if they agree to take certain forms of medication to reduce their libido. So that's not such a, a stretch to talk about these sorts of implants then, is it? That's, that's true. In some jurisdictions around the world, uh, you know, chemical castration is its is it's uh, known it is used but the uh, one thing that's um, a bit different here is there's a surveillance part that uh, doesn't occur with um, chemical castration or, or any other kind of uh, medication as a condition of release because there's a device that is constantly monitoring a person's brain there's an aspect of uh, mental privacy that I don't think is raised by uh, medication as a condition of release. Uh, maybe another thing that's a little bit different is, so these devices, um, you know, there's a close sort of nexus between uh, newer technology and artificial intelligence and machine learning. So the device was probably use a machine learning approach to monitor the brain and perhaps the device could be hacked for example, someone else could get unauthorized access to a device that uh, has got this impact on how a person behaves. So you might think, well, there's an, an issue of uh, a sort of strange issue of mental integrity here where uh, somebody um, could potentially get access to it. And there's a question, where, where does all this data go? You know, how is it housed and how is it? cared for once uh, the device has got this data, could it be reused for some other purpose at some time in the future if it's, it's storing data about a person's brain? Huge issues in, in a democracy where there's hopefully where there are hopefully some kind of checks and balances and, and some kind of transparency, well, hopefully. In totalitarian mm. regimes, uh, the potential is, is fairly terrifying. Yeah, and I think, I think that's the, the reason why myself and and others are looking at some of the human rights aspects of uh, neurotechnology there's a number of possible ways that neurotechnology brain computer interfaces and, and other neurotechnologies could be used to um, infringe on human rights and there's a question as to whether the human rights system is is fit for purpose given these neurotechnologies and, and what needs to be done. And indeed, this is a, a very much an emerging landscape and, and you, a, you and a number of other people around the world, but you're very much centre stage in, in trying to put these issues on the agenda. There is one country, one country, which is actively responding to these emerging technologies. It's, it's Chile. This is Chilean Senator Guido Girardi. He's speaking at a recent conference on the ethics of this developing technology. He's the main driver of two legal steps being considered by Chile's parliament. One of the things they're doing is they're going through a process to alter their constitution to protect certain neuro rights, uh, like the right to mental privacy, for example. And not only that, they've got a, a separate bill called the... Uh, neuroprotection bill that's going through the uh, legal process at the moment. And so probably later on 
in the year these two uh, legal changes will take effect. And um, they're going to be the world leader, really, in uh, in responding to uh, the human rights issues that emerge from newer technologies. And uh, I think there's a good chance that they will be followed by, by other places. I think, for example, Spain is is looking at things too at the moment and um, Chile might set, set an example for the rest of the world. So Chile in South America is at the forefront of the regulatory response. Silicon Valley in California is at the forefront of the, if you like, the technological innovations. Actually, one of the players there is, is uh, an Australian lawyer and entrepreneur, Tan Lee. She runs a, a, a company called Emotive. What are they doing in this headspace? They actually have headsets rather than invasive implants, don't they? Yes, yes. So an advantage of uh, doing that is uh, there's less in the way of regulatory uh, approval required for because it doesn't involve surgery into the body. So they are looking at um, technologies that are not necessarily addressed for therapeutic purposes. They are uh, looking at technologies that can be used, say, for gaming to control uh, games, or um, they're also interested in some of the possible workplace applications of um, their um, brain-computer interfacing devices. Fully developed, smart, adaptive environments will allow you to manipulate the world without even being conscious of it. By linking brain activity to preset commands, we can build environments that will automatically adapt themselves to changes in the brain creating dynamically optimised environments or workplaces that are instantly responsive to individual needs. A lapse in concentration could be countered by adjusting the temperature or lighting levels to a setting more suitable for sustaining attention. Or your music playlist could adapt to declining attention by replacing that gentle violin concerto with your favourite rock tune. Or if your brainware detects that you are fatigued, it could send a command to brew the coffee pot, or a message to your phone reminding you to take a short walk and stretch your legs. In effect, you become integrated with your environment, and your environment becomes an extension of your brain. And Tanley's company is also interested in possible applications for workplace training. Yeah, so... So one of the things for those who are engaged in training or any kind of education probably is, is useful to know is when uh, students are, are engaged and when they're most receptive to what they're about to be trained in or taught. And um, so neurotechnologies might pave the way to um, working out when the brain is in a state that's uh, likely to be receptive to acquiring a new skill or getting some new information and, and when, it's, uh, when it's, it's less so. And so uh, there's a clearly uh, a kind of um, a commercial and uh, training benefit to inputting information, if you like, at the, at the right time. So you can kind of see how there's commercial interest because it's it's a new way of um, a different way of controlling objects and computer screens and it opens up uh, some interesting commercial possibilities hence the race by a lot of different companies around the world to try and and get some good newer technology that they can 
make money from. And I think that's one of the the big things is there's a big commercial race on, and uh, given that, it's important to consider some of the uh, social, uh, ethical, and legal implications because something's happening. It's going. We're off. Alan McKay, our Deputy Director of the Institute of Criminology at the University of Sydney. A fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. That's the show for this week. A big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and also sound engineer Melissa May. Don't forget The Law Report is available from all your favourite podcast platforms. You can follow us and you can also leave a review. It helps others find the program. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.